Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We continue with our exploration of the Diamond Sutra. We are on chapter 17, and I trust that uh, you read, prepared, read the notes from Kyotai's email. So chapter 17 is a rather long chapter in comparison to the previous ones. So I'll read the chapter first, and we're going to go through some of the commentaries together. Again, the Venerable Subhuti asked the Buddha, Bhagavan, if someone sets forth on the Bodhisattva path, how should they stand? How should they walk? How should they control their thoughts? The Buddha said, Subhuti, Someone who sets forth on the Bodhisattva path should give birth to the thought, in the realm of complete nirvana, I shall liberate all beings. And while I thus liberate beings, not a single being is liberated. And why so? Why not? Subhuti. A Bodhisattva who creates the perception of a being cannot be called a Bodhisattva. Neither can someone who creates the perception of a life or even the perception of a soul can be called a bodhisattva. And why not? Subhuti. There is no such dharma as setting forth on the bodhisattva path. What do you think, Subhuti, when the Tathagata was with Dipankara Tathagata? Did he realize any such dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment? To this, the Venerable Subhuti answered, Bhagavan, as I understand the meaning of what the Tathagata is taught, when the Tathagata was with Dipankara Tathagata, the Arhan, the fully enlightened one, he did not realize any such Dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment. And to this the Buddha replied, So it is, Subhuti, so it is. When the Tathagata was with Dipankara Tathagata, the Arhan, the fully enlightened one, he did not realize any such Dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Subhuti, if the Tathagata has realized, such, realized any Dharma, Dipankara Tathagata would not have prophesied, young men, in the future you should become the Tathagata, the Arhan, the fully enlightened one, named Shakyamuni. Subhuti, it was because the Tathagata, the Arhan, the fully enlightened one, did not realize any such Dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment that Dipankara Tathagata prophesied, young men, in the future you should become the Tathagata, the Arhan, the fully enlightened one, named Shakyamuni. And how so? Tathagata, Subhuti, is, an, Tathagata Subhuti is another name for what is truly real. Tathagata Subhuti is another name for the Dharma with no beginning. Tathagata Subhuti is another name for the end of Dharmas. Tathagata Subhuti is another name for what never begins. And how so? No beginning, Subhuti, is the highest truth. Subhuti, if anyone should claim the Tathagata, the Ahan, the fully enlightened one, realized unexcelled perfect enlightenment, such a claim would be untrue. Subhuti, they would be making a false statement about me. And how so? Subhuti, the Tathagata did not realize any such Dharma as unexcelled perfect enlightenment. 
Furthermore, Subhuti, in the Dharma realized and or taught by the Tathagata, there is nothing true and nothing false. Thus, the Tathagata says all Dharmas are Buddha Dharmas. And how so? All Dharmas, Subhuti, are said by the Tathagata to be no Dharmas. Thus are all Dharmas called Buddha Dharmas. Subhuti, imagine a perfect person with an immense perfect body. The Venerable Subhuti said, Bhagavan, this perfect person whom the Tathagata says has the immense perfect body, Bhagavan, the Tathagata says has no body. Thus it is called an immense perfect body. Buddha said, so it is, Subhuti. And if a Bodhisattva says, I shall liberate other beings, that person is not called a Bodhisattva. And why not? Subhuti, is there any such Dharma as a Bodhisattva? The Venerable Subhuti replied, no. Indeed, Bhagavan, there is no such Dharma as a Bodhisattva. Buddha said, and beings, Subhuti, beings are said by the Tathagata to be no beings. Thus they are called beings. And thus does the Tathagata say all dharmas have no self, all dharmas have no life, no individuality, and no soul. Subhuti, if a bodhisattva should thus claim, I shall bring about the transformation of a world, such a claim would be untrue. And how so? The transformation of the world, Subhuti, the transformation of a world is said by the Tathagata to be no transformation. Thus, it is called the transformation of the world. Subhuti, when a Bodhisattva resolves on selfless Dharma as selfless Dharmas, the Tathagata, the Ahan, the fully enlightened one, pronounces that person a fearless Bodhisattva. So, a long chapter. I find it very fitting uh, looking back at our discussion last Sunday and also what I wrote in the email replying to some of the emails that have been bouncing around. But I would like us to explore that together to try to understand what it is shedding light on. So, I'll I'm going to go to, I'm going to begin with uh, reading a little bit from uh, Bill Porter, from the commentaries. Subhuti asked the same questions he asked in chapter 2, but this is not a simple repetition. As if he were singing a song, Subhuti restates the opening theme. But since he first asked these questions, Subhuti has his understanding turned upside down and has been moved to tears by the force of this teaching. He now re-examines his earlier questions in the light of what he has learned. Also, Subhuti's previous questions were those of a Shravaka, curious about the path. Shravaka, a voice hearer. Subhuti asked again as a Bodhisattva, curious about the goal. The Buddha, however, is concerned that Disciples such as Subhuti might become entangled by aspects of the path, including the goal. Hence, he reviews his own experience as the Bodhisattva path 
to make clear that no Dharma is of itself real. That what is real never sets forth on the Bodhisattva path or realizes enlightenment or liberates anyone. That what is real is the selfless and beginninglessness of all Dharmas. In this chapter, the Buddha introduces us to the seventh perfection, the perfection of skillful means, Upaya. The first time Subhuti asked these questions, he was inspired by the Buddha's example. He saw how the Buddha stood, how the Buddha walked, and how the Buddha controlled his thoughts. Replying to Subhuti's questions, the Buddha urged Subhuti to practice the perfection of charity, Dhanna Palamita, forbearance, Ksanti Palamita, and wisdom, Prajna Palamita, to counter attachment to a self, which is the greatest obstacle for all practitioners, to setting forth on the Bodhisattva path. Subhuti has now set forth and wants to know what to do next. So, here's a question to look at. How does this work together with what we chant when we first, before we sit, and then after we sit? Right, so we sit, we go to the nominal, we end sitting, we go back to the phenomenal, and we go back to the phenomenal with a resolution, with setting out the intention to save all beings. And here, clearly, there is no one to save and nothing can do the saving. What do we do with that? Should we check? what we chant. How do we understand it? So let's take a few minutes to explore that together and uh, I'd like to hear from anyone who wants to talk. So I'm going to hear from, we are all going to hear from Rezan. I think you're still muted. Okay, now I'm unmuted. Now you're muted. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I think in um, in meeting the present moment, um, there is always this. Um, um, well, I've been doing a lot of thinking about karma and opaya. Those are the two um, presences that I've been working with for uh, for some time. And in the present moment, there's this, this sense of all of the past, which is um, the karma of the world, and the world keeps um, forming itself in that way. Um, and upaya is um, the, um, what we bring to that moment, and um, our 
notion that we can shape that in some way toward the future. Um, so karma is the past and upaya is the future in some way. Uh, and we keep coming to this uh, present moment over and over and over again um, throughout our practice. Um, and um, even in our lives when we're not aware of our practicing. Um, but it's, um, uh, it's that sense of meeting um, the moment from um, the point of view that we're um, um, ultimately going to change um, something which um, I think in the, the, the more um, profound moments of realization, um, we realize that um, there really is nothing to change and that the, the actions that we do are um, absolutely essential for the moment and yet, um, um, well, I guess one way of expressing it is that the moment is what's acting. It's kind of a Taoist notion that um, we don't do anything. It's the, um, it's the moment that is doing the acting. Um, so as this sounds somewhat incoherent to me at the moment, uh, it's my blessing to you this morning to give you this incoherence. Um, but um, that's what I have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rezan. So, transformation of the world is said by the Tathagata to be no transformation, right? And, and I often think that this is the missing link in, our, in the craziness of our actions. We run around trying to fix everything, trying to create something, trying to take care of stuff. And then again and again, we recognize or realize that our efforts are not really met the way we want them to be met. And then we get discouraged, we get uh, jaded, and we may stop doing altogether. And there is, this is a very important point because a transformation is said to be no transformation. So there's really nothing that needs to be done and nobody is doing anything. And unless and until we real, well, again and again and again realize this again and again that nothing matters, nothing matters. And I know this probably raises hair on many people's backs. How can you say nothing matters when there's so much atrocity, so much pain in the world? But nothing matters until and unless we realize again and again that nothing matters, we will keep creating what we're trying to eliminate very important to recognize that the true meaning of nothing, of no self, of no separate existence, of no transformation. And it's not something that we can read about or, or talk about in book study and, and get it. It has to be understood, realized personally. And, and as I said, I think last week as well, that at some point in our practice, we have to let go of our um, idea of realization because it is an obstacle. Our idea of realization is actually uh, detached from what's happening right now. It is somehow an idea of something better than that. 
thinking that there is something better than that. And again and again, we create walls in the mind. So to, to rest in nothing matters, to rest in there is no way to do anything to anyone. Now, does that mean there's no pain? Does that mean there's no suffering? Of course not. There's no pain and there's no end to pain. There's no suffering and there's no end to suffering. And, and both aspects need to be understood as one. And it is a challenge. Of course it's a challenge. But it is essential. If we, if we really want to do anything, we have to sit with that for a while and understand again and again, what does that mean? How, how, how do I reconcile nothing matters, and then move into action. What does that look like? So before we move on to some other commentaries, uh, is there anyone else who wants to say a few words about it? Yeah. Um, at the moment, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Very well. At the moment, I don't understand nothing matters, but um, I'm thinking that to have a big view of no self, no separate identity, could somehow lead to um, a sense of humility in the face of pain and injustice so that um, actions coming out of that place um, could be less um, helter-skelter and less likely to recreate and perpetuate exactly what it is that we're wanting to um, eliminate. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right word. So... Um, bring healing to. What? To bring healing to. What yeah, we're trying to bring to healing rather than more... Uh, strife mm -hmm. so that um there could be more harmony i don't understand that as nothing matters but i it seems like it's a greater understanding and then in answer to the first question you asked i thought what raison said was very meaningful to me, but I wasn't sure that it responded to what you asked, which is how can it be, well, now I'm not sure what you asked, how can it be that uh, nothing matters and everything matters? And that seems to me like uh, living with paradox. Right, that caught me. In one moment, in one moment, you're in the big view, and then you come back to the specific view. So 
I can see you going back and forth. Maybe it's possible for someone at some time to be in both views at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, that's not possible for me yet, but um, but to see that at least for at my stage that there is paradox that I can't resolve in a single um, mm -hmm. can't come to one view or the other. Right, is going to be paradox. So, you know, Rumi said, live in the Noah that you came from, although you have an address here. Yeah. Live in the Noah that you came from, although you have an address here. And, it, and it, it's one way, it's a, it's a poetic way, it's a nice way to say that it's right here. So right here in this address in Ridgewood, you live in the Noah that you came from, right? So the dichotomy does exist in the mind. And we have to walk with that, obviously. We cannot just chuck it. We have to walk with that dichotomy, the seeming dichotomy. We have to accept the fact that there is a dichotomy in the mind. But we also, we teach ourselves, right? We teach each other to not believe every thought that appears in the mind, including this one, right? So this is along the many other thoughts that appear in our minds that we need to, we need to uh, first of all, recognize and examine, what does that mean? Does it really, you know, is it true, right? Do I have to believe it? Since I think it, does it mean this is the way it is? Or since it appears in my mind? So what if it appears in my mind? Right? It's one way to, to give some expansion to what's going on in our minds, to the thoughts, to the strong belief system that we may have in our minds. Right. So, but the question, right. So the question of uh, bringing those two as what to seeing those two as one, right. So I vow to save all creation, right. Numberless creation, right. How do I do that when there is, then when I cannot do the saving and there's nobody to be saved. That's the question. Mm -hmm. We have to ask the question, right. So instead of running to find ways to glue those two together. We have to just ask the question and sit with that. Because the question actually leads to the right, in the right direction. As long as we don't rush to answer it. Right? Like, why do you put on the robes at the sound of the bell? Some questions need to be asked, but after that need to be left alone and examined in a deeper way, a deeper level. Of course, we have answers for everything, but that's, that's the automatic, that's the habitual. So when we don't rush to answer to ourselves or to another person, we actually have the, the, the openness or the possibility to explore beyond what we think. And do you agree that this can lead to action with humility, which hopefully would be less destructive? Yes, because it's less hectic, it's less frantic, right? I got to get it done. This has to be this way because I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And this is wrong. And within five years, three years, one month, it has to be done. That's my plan. And it has to go based on my plan. It has to go this way. And if it's not going this way, then I'm going to give up. And also less... I have to be right. Yes, it is beyond right and wrong. 
Right, and it does not negate morality. So we cannot, what we talked about last week, the first chapter, we, we, we should watch for the way we attach ourselves to either the, the nothing or the something, the noumenal or the phenomenal. We should just watch for that because our tendency is to attach, which is actually what, in a way, what's going on in this sutra, right? You know, Subhuti comes into that conversation with strong attachment to nothing. And then he's learning about the something, which is not negating the nothing, right, from a different perspective, and then he may attach to that. So the Buddha keeps going, so watch out. Do not attach yourself to that either. Because within light there is darkness, within darkness there is light. We think we have to choose. Yeah. Right, which is what you're saying is you know there is a dichotomy. You know I don't understand the nothing in the something. Maybe because we're looking for a nothing in the something as separated from the something. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe because we're looking for enlightenment as something that's not this. Right. So we reject while we are searching. <laughs> but what if this is it? What if this is it? The whole package. And the answer is, I don't like this. How could that be it? Look how much craziness going on. How could that be it? We have to fix it before it becomes it, right? But there's nothing to fix. It, this is what the... the, the this chapter is saying, or the entire sutra, there's nothing to fix. And it's, it's, it's difficult for us to, to, to reconcile or to, to, re, to recognize that. Because we think, well, if there's nothing to fix, then I'm going to give up. Then I'm attached to nothing to fix. It is, it is nothing but freeing, it is nothing but freedom, because it frees us to not attach to anything and then apply efforts, right? So right effort, we talked about right effort a while ago, right effort is free of the person who is applying the effort. So the effort does not come from that person. The person has limited amount of effort. I ran out of efforts. I ran out of patience. I've had enough. Why? Because it's my efforts, my patience. I've had enough of this. But if, if the person who's applying the efforts is not there, then how do we run out? Who's running out of anything, of, of effort, for example? Right? So active all day, she does nothing. And Rezan talked about in Taoist. Of course, there is a strong uh, influence of Taoism in Zen, but active all day, she does nothing. Is she lazy? Active all day, she does nothing because she's not even there. All there is is the action. Or she's nothing but the action. And, you know, statements like that, sayings like that actually help a lot to, 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 to stop trying to merge 
two things that are not two, basically. Or to, to stop jumping from one to the other. Does that work? So, Gyoko? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, there's still um, a big koan here for me. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Koans are great. You know, as long as, actually, as long as, uh, I think Daibo mentioned something about, uh, you know, to look at all this as a koan. Uh, yes, it actually is a great way to look at it. This is a great koan. Mm -hmm. Because when we, when we see something, if we understand how to work with koans, if we see an obstacle or a challenge as a koan, then it changes the way we are interacting with it, right? It's no longer an obstacle, although it may feel like an obstacle, it's no longer just an obstacle, right? There is also, we also raise uh, a deeper sense of curiosity mm -hmm. about it, which really can open it up. So mm -hmm. yes, it's a great con. Well, life is a great con. So we can see that uh, this what, we, what we're working with, whether it's our own practice or social injustice, as the greatest koan of our lives. That that could change the way we move through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you. So I'm going to keep reading a little bit, and then we open it up again. Uh, this is from the commenters. Tao Yuan says. The previous sections were like a map. If you want to go somewhere, you look at the map until you understand it thoroughly. Then, when you set out, you won't get lost or stop halfway, but will keep going until you reach the, your destination. From chapter 17 on, the meaning is completely different from what, was, from what has gone before. What follows discusses how we should begin our journey on the road of practice. Practice that depends on our understanding of what has gone before and that does not begin until we have achieved such understanding. The words here are the same, but the meaning is different. So this, this is alluding to the deepening process that we need to keep engaging with on a regular basis, right? So uh, to get discouraged or to get jaded about what's going on around us or about our practice is to, to not understand that this is a continuous deepening process. So, and, and along that line or deepening process, it, it's, we also have to understand it's not linear. It's not the way we think. It's actually, it goes against the way we think, which is why it's often difficult because the mind doesn't know what to do with it. Because what we know is, is a linear progress. And this is not a linear progress. Why? Because we're already there. Because there's nobody that's going anywhere. Because this is always it. This has always been it. So if this has always been it, how could it be a linear progress? Where are we going? What is point A? What is point B? And what is in between? So it goes against the grain. It goes against the way we think. And we have to not change the way we think, but put aside the way we think from time to time. We don't have to change anything, you know, it's fine. We, we, can, we, we have to understand that the way we think is, is just the way we think and it's habitual and it's just the way we are. But to bring to that an understanding that 
This is not linear that uh, we've always been there. We are already it. And then to do what we need to do. Right? And it opens things up. And also there's no, when we practice, when we work this way, there's no waste. There's no wasted energy. Right? So our, our entire energies are, are, are able, we are able to devote our entire energies to the task at hand. We're not losing it to the despair, to being jaded about the situation, to being discouraged, to complaining, to judging. There's all this going on and it, it, it drains our energies, it drains our batteries. So, the deepening process. Seng Chao says, this part of the sutra explains the emptiness of the bodhisattva. Hence, it says below that there is nothing that goes in search of enlightenment. For the person who travels this path is empty. Shengi says, when controlling our thoughts is discussed in the first half of the sutra, it means controlling thoughts that involve attachment to a self. When, the, when this is discussed in the second half, it means controlling thoughts that involve attachment to the teaching. If a bodhisattva falls in love with the teaching, this is a bodhisattva's worst folly. Of course, we can become self-righteous and feel even more justified to not be flexible, right? to not be open. So, when, as we said before, we're not attached to the noumenal or to the phenomenal, to the empty or to what's going on moment by moment. So, Taiwan says, the Buddha's previous answer was intended to eliminate the perception of reality outside our minds. His answer in this chapter is intended to eliminate attachment to anything inside our mind. So again and again, watch for the way we attach, right? To watch how we, how our tendency to attach has nothing to do with what we attach ourselves to. And with that, I, we have to also bring in the notion of right and wrong. We can be attached to what we think is right and fight against what we think is wrong. And that's dangerous. That is dangerous. So it's very fitting with what we are working with these days. So, before we move on, any other thoughts? Any uh, Daibo, go ahead. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. um, so, in this chapter, um, you know, we, we're, we're basically pummeled with the dialectic of something is not what it is. And because it's not what it is, we can say that it is what it is. Um, and so, so to me, it, it brings up the notion of, and they talk about it in the chapter of the provisional self, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when I started studying Zen, there was, there was me, right? And I was out front and I was out front all the time. And everything I did was based on this me, right? So I started studying Zen to kind of like take the backward step, as, as Dogen says, and, you know, sit and, and kind of, you know, calm my mind and things like that. Um, so 
what's what's been happening to me over time is that um and it doesn't happen all the time and it's not something that i can control yet but i almost i can almost sometimes feel myself operating from this point of of unity and then when i experience something a provisional self comes out that does the right thing at the right time the appropriate and authentic thing at that moment and then that that self can recede but then the me comes out and then it's the me that wants it this way wants it done that way wants to do things now wants to do like that but I think what I got from this chapter, and I think, you know, following up on what Jeremy just said, is that it's it's this notion of when you can, operating from a place of unity, and then bringing this provisional self out, these skillful means, this upaya out into the world, and, and doing what's necessary at that moment, um, and then almost receding back you know, into a, a place of unity and then coming out and experiencing um, what's happening in your life, and what's happening in my life, you know, coming out and trying to be uh, appropriate and not necessarily controlling that, that me necessarily, mm -hmm. but acknowledging that, that me and all the things that that me is holding on to, um, like Jim said, it really doesn't matter because it's gonna happen anyway, right? So the only impact I can have is by, um, you know, coming out authentically in that moment and doing what's required, um, which is extremely difficult because um, there's so much me that wants to control the situation. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that in a nutshell is kind of what I got from this chapter. Um, so. Thank you. So you mentioned becoming aware of being being uh, in unity right so becoming aware of functioning from the, the noumenal or from being uh, at the noumenal right and 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 it's very interesting right because as soon as we become aware we something else is happening right so there is something that wants to become aware of that right so there is a gap of that which is aware and that which is we are aware of basically right so there, there are two things there and you know as dogen said buddhas do not know that they are buddhas if the no notion of i know i'm a buddha comes up there's no longer that it is something else that notion actually reveals our need to attach right it is and, showing and I us think that that you know that that the unity that i talk about is kind of the letting go that um, you know, the, the context of our lives is the context of our lives. And, you know, we can flow with that context and we can fight that context, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. and the, the flowing um, to me is, um, you know, you can come out and, and do what's necessary. And in some cases it's necessary to fight and in some cases it's necessary not to fight. So, yeah. um, where I see the, the this notion of unity is is kind of like just just letting go and flowing with what's going on, and that doesn't mean like we've talked about many times. It doesn't mean like being a doormat. Mm -hmm. You don't have to just take it, right? But but you have to to flow with what's going on and 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 you know use the practice that we have 
um, to, to, to do something, you know, and, and good is the right word, wholesome is the right word, but to do something that's appropriate mm-hmm. in that moment um, for the benefit of everyone involved in the situation. Yeah, and the doing just happens. Right. That, that's the so magic. Be, that's so the there magic is no saving anyone because that's like an idea, right? What does it mean to save people? You know, like, you know, I, I always come back to this, the, the sixth pledge of the novice priest, right? I shall open the gate of enlightenment, stand outside the threshold, hearing the cries of creation, help us off the creation through. You know, what does that really mean? It's like, it's poetic, but it's like inscrutable at the same time. So, you know, if you don't think about it as an idea, if you don't think about saving people as an idea, if you just do things that help people, you know, then you, you don't get caught up in those entangling vines of, of the idea of saving people. Yeah. You're just doing it. So, and when you do something, all there is is the action of doing it. Yeah, active all day, he does nothing. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So let's keep going and then uh, for a few more minutes and open it up again. Uh, so that does this uh, paragraph from the Sutra. Bodhisattva who creates the perception of a being cannot be called a Bodhisattva. Neither can someone who creates the perception of a life or even a, the perception of a soul can be called a Bodhisattva. So in the commentary it says, uh, Asanga actually says, that to practice and to think I am a Bodhisattva, this is obstruction, not detachment of the mind. Vasubandhu comments, if a Bodhisattva gives birth to such thoughts as I stand as a bodhisattva or I walk or I control thoughts. These all obstruct enlightenment. And Kamala Shila comments, those who set forth on the bodhisattva path are mentioned again in order to completely clarify the purity of the seed. While the pure seed they cultivate is not only devoid of perceptions regarding the appearance of a giver, recipient, of a, or a gift, only if they avoid such thoughts as I stand, I walk, or I control thoughts, can their minds be pure. And that's, that connects with what you just said, Daibu. Yin Shun says, first we are told there are no beings we can save. Now we are told that there's no such thing as setting forth to save anyone. And then Xing Yu, Someone cannot be called a bodhisattva until they have given birth to the thought of enlightenment. However, there is, in fact, no such thing as giving birth to the thought of enlightenment. Because enlightenment means all things are empty, how can there be anything that gives birth to the thought of enlightenment? When these perceptions are empty, the thought of enlightenment appears. There isn't something outside of these perceptions that gives birth to the thought of enlightenment. So, what do we do with that? Are you are we confused, or is there a glimmer or something there that we can relate with, relate to? Yes. So I I um, had a question about something you said earlier, which is the the point about attaching to right and wrong. Um. You know how how can one act without without sort of developing a view of 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 right and wrong in a in a given situation? I understand that 
you shouldn't. I mean, uh, I guess the question is, I mean, attachment to right and wrong is you have to develop a, an understanding of the situation. So necessarily you will, it's, it's unavoidable that you will have to come up with some sense of what is right and wrong. And once that happens, you have to kind of pursue, you have to make a choice to pursue the right and, and avoid the wrong. Right. So how do you, how can you do that without attaching? So, so the question is not right and wrong as much as who is making the decision. Okay. Who is making the choice? Again, it's not negating, obviously, morality, right? Sila Palamita, this is, yeah, it's a very important point, right? We're not chucking it, right? We're not rejecting that. But, right. but and that's not the question. The question is, do you know who is, who is the one who's making the choice? Mm-hmm. So that's one. And the other thing to look at is when I, when I, when we say this is right, mm-hmm. we have a problem because all this and those people are wrong. What do we do about that? Mm-hmm. When you create you, you create the other. When you create the right, you create the wrong or those who are wrong. Right. What do we do with that is the question. So maybe maybe the question is is um, identifying conduct that's that's wrong rather than creating the other and then acting like Daibo said from a place of of unity to or oneness to try to act appropriately under the in the context of, of the moment. Yeah. Right. So, so the question. One second. So the question is: is how do we, how do we see it? Right. So there is what we think is right, and there is what we think is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And isn't that what on the other side of that uh, created division or divide? Isn't that what the other side thinks as well? And what's the difference? So, so what are the parameters? Who is holding on to those parameters? Right. Mm-hmm. So th- these are very important questions to, to look at. And uh, yeah, so who is the one, who's the one that knows what is right and what is wrong? Yeah, but uh, ultimately somebody's, one of those views is more in accord with reality than another, right? At some point. Reality includes what we think is right and what we think is wrong, does it not? Yes, sure. If it includes both, then you're saying that one is more reality than the other? I mean, one view of right and wrong may be more consonant or more more consistent with the, a fuller picture of reality than, uh, than somebody else's view of right and wrong, which may be more narrow or maybe more um partial or biased right do you remember the highest form of buddhahood i am life force and i am destruction mm-hmm. i am life force and i am destruction what, right. do, what do we do with that 
right? Mm -hmm. Again, it doesn't fit the mind. It's true. It doesn't fit the way we think. That is true. So right. when, when we put aside for, for a little bit the way we think, does it work? So, hang on, a few people, uh, I think mm -hmm. Jürgen wanted to speak, and then uh, Daikyo, and then I think uh, Jeremy. Right? Go ahead. Should I go first? Yeah, you go first. I was just thinking about what everybody else has been saying, and, um, and what's right and what's wrong, and um, <laughs> I was just... I don't think, um, I think that there's too much thinking, right and wrong. There's too much, um, in every situation, thinking, oh, well, I'm right and this one's wrong, and I'm more right than this one, and, um, I feel like it's all there, and depending on the action you take, it affects people. And um, it either unifies or it separates. And I think ultimately it's the separation uh, one from the other that creates, dis creates um, pain and suffering. I just wanted to say that as it arose. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to, to touch base on, on on some stuff I heard um, you know from Sigyoku and Daiwo and and I, I like the question from Rush. Um, I think you know when when we're talking about nothing matters, which is kind of what, what seems to be the theme, you know, and, and Sayoko was mentioning, and also Rush was saying, okay, how, how come there's nothing matters? I mean, there is wrong and there is right, and I know that, or I feel that, you know, and, um, and, and, and the entry point I found, I mean, this is, this is what I, I in my experience of, of what I find the entry point to, to take a look at those things when we're talking about nothing matters. Um, what I think we're talking about is more about no gain. You know, no gain. Um, you know, I, I like that we're chanting that, 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 you know, with the Heart Sutra. You know, we start but realize that there is no gain. And no gain is encompassing of all this because, you know, every time we attach to things, we start to get a feeling of gain. You know, that is a personal gain. Even though we might think that ourselves are kind of a very selfless person that, okay, I'm not, I, I don't want this good for me. I want this good for the humanity. I want this to save people, or whatever that is. There is a sensation of gain. There is an action that comes from me saving, me action that is, regardless of how good it is, I mean, it doesn't need to be attached to what we consider to be greed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be selfish, but it's still a gain. Is still a perception of gain. And that is what makes the action not pure, not a bodhisattva action, because it, it is attached to a destination. It is attached to something that we need to achieve, something that it needs to be accomplished. 
you know, and that is where the right and wrong comes in. You know, like, okay, if this is right, I will like, I will like, I really like, for my understanding of right, which is wider than the understanding of right that this other guy has, to be something that is for everybody. And that gain is what is hindering the action itself, you know, and then what is hindering our path to this. So every time I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of, um, we are exposed to something, to some action to do, I, I always try to kind of, um, if I'm confused about it, you know, I, I try to kind of put this, what, what I think I'm gaining about whatever action I think I need to do, could that kind of try to at least acknowledge that I do have hidden understandings of some self-perception that is benefiting from this action. You know, and, and, and so so that's the test I've been doing or, or I've been trying to practice every time I, I feel like uh, I need to kind of I need to make a decision on something that is not so obvious sometimes, you know. And and I and I think it touches with everybody who was talking. I mean I was just kinda of wanted to to um share that um what helped me or, or how, how do I kind of engage with the actual issue of, okay, so what do I do now? Because I mean, it's very paralyzing and I cannot understand how you can get paralyzed if you say, okay, so nothing matters. So, so, okay, so what do I do? And, uh, and it's not about that. Like we've been saying, it's more about, okay, where are I, I mean, what is the state of mind that I'm using to do whatever I do? Is that a state of mind that has nothing to gain, or is it a state of mind that has some hidden gain? You know, and uh, and that's kind of what what I've been uh, working. Want to share that? Right. Thank you, Jeremy. Where'd you go? I was I, listening to everybody. I uh, and thinking about the readings. I've thought a lot about this sense of an obstacle that keeps coming up and it feels like it's that obstacle of attachment to boundaries in themselves. Um, and so some of the things that have intrigued me lately is just like a painting of a line or just that, just a line. And that line being like maybe a, a border or a boundary in and of itself. But ultimately that ends up being what we're holding on to. And like even in the Bodhisattva vows, um, reality is boundless. Mm -hmm. So that line doesn't exist. That is the reality that we're seeking. And we, I think, inherently delude ourselves to create those lines of being or bodhisattva or bodhisattva or um, Buddha. And so, um, or practice or non-practice, cushion or non-cushion. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's just listening to everyone. I'm obsessed with this idea of the line, whether it be from past to present, what is the spot between? And really it's that moment. Mm -hmm. And if we can find that, then that obstacle eliminates. Right. And thank you. Thank you for that. There's one point that's also important here. Uh, we, uh, we all, all actually are practitioners and people from outside the practice. We make something of Buddhism. But when we really understand the Diamond Sutra, there is no such thing that can be called Buddhism. But we, in our minds, there is Buddhism. In our mind, there is Zen practice. Whether we like it or not is secondary. 
Whether we think this is my path or it's not my path is actually not important. But we do have to examine our relationship to the practice. Am I making something of it? It's my practice. Those are my people. People I go sit with. Right? We have to look at that. What does that mean? From inside the practice, from outside the practice, if anybody is listening to what we do or is interested in what we do, right? it's very easy. And that's actually one of the first things we look at when we talk about introduction to, to Zen practice or Buddhism. We, we have to address that. We have to address the fact that there's nothing here. There is a lot in the mind when you look at what is going on, but essentially there is nothing here. And, and also this here is beyond right and wrong. It's not that we, we got the right goods and uh, you come here and we'll share some with you. Right? It, it doesn't work this way. We don't have anything. That's what makes the practice so powerful because we got nothing to give. And when we have nothing to give, all there is is just giving. And, and, and again, it seems dichotomous, but it's actually not at all because it is all-inclusive. And we talked about acceptance last Sunday. That's true acceptance. True acceptance accepts the right and the, what we think is right and what we think is wrong in our minds and outside, in reality itself. All of it has to be accepted. And then there is sila, right? There is morality, of course. But we have to come back and again and again to total acceptance. So if you want to talk, just hold your thoughts for a little bit. I'm going to keep reading and we'll go back to uh, talking together. Taiwan says, the first half of the Diamond Sutra explains how to think about liberating other beings while remaining free of the perception of being. From chapter 17 on, the second half explains how to get free of the perception of liberation and even the perception of future Buddhahood. And Bill Porter says, the Buddha uses his own example with Dipankara Buddha to convey the importance of non-attainment and non-attachment. How could he make this any clearer? Only by means of such non-attainment and non-attachment does the Bodhisattva realize enlightenment and liberate other beings. Instead of going forward, the Bodhisattva actually goes backwards. Instead of reaching the end, the Bodhisattva finds no beginning. It's a very important point. Instead of reaching the end, the Bodhisattva finds no beginning. No beginning, no end. In his Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu says, the Tao moves the other way. <clears throat> it's an important point because when we, when we practice, when we first, first set foot on the path of practice, there is a notion of I'm going to practice and arrive somewhere, and I'm going to eliminate some things and uh, arrive or receive other things, right, to displace those, what I have with those, with the new ones. And we got to go backwards rather than forward. So we have to open up the hand, let go of what we have accumulated. Even the notion of realization, even the notion of this practice will help me realize. Even that has to be put aside. And, uh, and it's not easy because we don't want to give it up. We don't want to give it up. Primarily because we don't like the way things are and we, we, we want to believe Although it may not be true, we want to believe that there is something better, 
But there is never something better than this. This is the best there is. Based on the standards, of course it's not. How could it be? The standards say, say no. They could be better. How? How can anything be better than this? Or where is better than this? Another way to ask. When we realize that there is nothing better than this, this is the best there is. The best place, the, be the best time, the best appearance, existence, as is. Nothing better. The Nirvana Sutra says, when nothing is realized, it is called wisdom. When something is realized, it is called delusion. When nothing, no thing is realized, this is wisdom. Otherwise, wisdom gets stuck, or we get stuck. Wisdom is free, we get stuck if we attach to something. Or if we realize or recognize something, that thing is already an obstacle. Because it's a thing. Because it is fixed. Because I am fixated on that thing. It's actually not the thing that's fixed. It's I am fixed. And I find myself in the thing. It's the only way we can find ourselves. Because we cannot find ourselves if we look within. You sit in Zazen and you look. And you put aside what you think you know about yourself. You will not find yourself. And I'm not telling you to believe me. I'm saying keep trying. And let me know if you did. But so far, nobody, you know, thousands of years of evolution, nobody came and said, I found something. There is nothing there. So in order to find ourselves, we have to attach to something. And actually often we attach to pain. We attach to being a victim or being a part of a group of victims. This is who I am. Now I know and now everybody else knows. But when you put that aside, you truly cannot find yourself. And yes, it is scary. It is scary. So, uh, okay, well, let's open it up for a few more minutes. Uh, I see Ari raised the hand. Uh, then Raj, great, Ari. And then uh, Patricia. <laughs> Paul. Hi, hi everybody. <clears throat> I, I want to touch on a little bit of um, everything that's been shared. I, I love uh, these um, discussions so much. I learn a lot and really enjoy um, everyone's perspective. Um, so I, I am going through, I, I'm just going to give you, I, I I can, I'm, I'm going to speak from personal experience and give you an example from my own life. Uh, I'm going through some litigation with my ex and, uh, um, you know, I've, I've ridden uh, the roller coaster um, uh, of self. Uh, initially, uh, the karmic forces, um, uh, the prevailing kar karmic forces in my life um, were such that I had um, enormous uh, fear and uh, resistance um, and wanted to uh, 
squirm out of it any possible way that I could. Um, because in the past, uh, you know, what's showing up now gave me an opportunity to, uh, you know, sit quietly with the fear, which then allowed me to um, untangle it and, and recognize the historic um, events that were informing it, which were when I was a kid and I was in foster homes and um, uh, uh, starting from when I was nine. And every year I would have to um, go in front of a judge um, and, uh, and hear um, and have my own mother uh, reject me. And I felt you know, and the the entire experience was um, mortifying and humiliating. And I, I remember, you know, sitting in the waiting room, waiting to go in, feeling just completely isolated and alone and, um, and ashamed as if everybody, you know, knew that, um, you know, that that there was something wrong with me, basically, and the myriad of beliefs, self-beliefs that, you know, I created through that. But with this current um, current situation and with the support of um, several people, Kyotai, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, um, and an uh, intention to uh, meet, meet this situation um, and and honor the precepts uh you know i had it's you know the bloom and the force of this uh prevailing karma was just undone like that in such a potent and dynamic way um and i didn't ha really have to do anything um and and that and you know doing nothing was not i you know i'm not i can't take credit for it um uh, you know, I just um, showed up free from attachment uh, to any outcome uh, and and also mindful of these precepts. And I, you know, I spent, you know, the last month asking big questions like, well, how do I defend myself in this in this system without, um, you know, blaming someone else to make myself look right, right? And, um, and really sitting with all of that and getting lots of wonderful feedback. Um, and, you know, th th there's no magic bullet for me. Um, uh, it went well for me at this hearing. Um, and, uh, and one, one thing I noticed, you know, was that because I just brought, I brought my full presence and I felt present with the judge, uh, with her, with her attorney and, uh, you know, and the love that's in my heart, uh, things went in a very unexpected way uh, for all of us. Um, I don't quantify, you know, I, I don't need to quantify it or continue to quantify it. But what I have noticed is there's an ancillary benefit of, you know, this person that I love is acting out of a, a lot of hurt and pain and um, she's suffering. She's suffering way more than I am. Um, but at the end of the day, the actions and her intent to harm me 
um, has failed. And so just simply by showing up for this situation that was, you know, absolutely terrifying for me, um, and neither, you know, um, needing to be right or wrong, uh, it had this additional benefit of really saving her from harming me. So, uh, you know, and that's not intended by me. That's just me, you know, uh, applying the, the principles of, of this practice and, and, and living them, uh, you know, as um, being as naked as, as possible. Um, uh, you know, which means I can't take credit for it, but there are those additional benefits. Um, and so that's, that's wonderful. And I'm going to keep going. And that's all I have to say. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. So it made sense. Uh, it, yes, definitely does. Okay. Raj, then Paul. Thanks, Roshi. Um, I guess I, I, I was trying to um, come to terms with, with your saying that this is the best uh, that is possible because how do you, how do you move towards any change if this is already the best yeah. that's possible? I mean, I can accept it in the sense of saying, look, uh, this is what it is and we have to accept it because it is reality. Um, but if you say that this is the best that it is, then you really can't go anywhere from there. Can you? That's this is something we need to examine, right? Because based on the teaching, this is it, right? So based on what we're reading, this is it. Right. And, yeah. the, and there is nothing here at the same time. Right. Because this extends in all the 10 directions. Right. It is it, this moment is skewed by everything. or We are skewed by past, present, future. There are no divisions. How could it change? Right. How, where is transformation? If nobody is here to transform anything and nothing can be transformed, where are you going or where do you want to go? As long as you're here, you want to go somewhere else. But what if you are not, you and here are not two? Let's put it this way. What, what if you and this are not dual? Yeah, but isn't it, aren't both those things true, though? I mean, isn't it? So, on the one hand, there is the nominal and the nothing matters. But on the, and you know, you made the point about identifying with a particular group historically or whatever. But on the one hand, yes, there's the nominal, but the phenomenal is, is also true, right? The relative is also part of that. It's not, it's not two from that, non-dual from that. Uh, sit with what, you know, with what Rumi said, right? Live in the nowhere that you came from, although you have an address here. Mm -hmm. Sit with that for a little while. There is a haunting question there. I get it. Mm -hmm. We all get it. There is a haunting question and that question keeps floating around and we, we actually don't want to let it go. Not so easily. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and that's, a, yes, it's a common question. Well, if, if this is the best there is, why should I 
why should I strive for anything else, right? But that ha in itself has a notion of gain, as Daikia was saying, right? That by itself is revealing something to you that you need to work on. Yeah, but that's it. As soon as that but comes up, that's it. There is a separation. But it isn't even the moment the result of the efforts of so many who have already said this is not the best, right? I mean, the moment itself has been produced over time by lots of people saying, you know, we need to, we need to improve things or we need to have something better. Does that right? negate, does that negate this is the best there is? Does working to change things negate this is the best there is? Yes, by the standards of the mind, absolutely. And here's the thing, by the standards of the mind, there's always a better place, a better version of me, a better time, other people, better house, better car. But it's, that's not what we want. Well, okay, that's what we do. Absolutely, that's what we are taught to do. But we got to step away from that and ask the real question, is that true? Or just go along with that and believe, yes, well, that's what everybody else is saying, so it must be true. So stop and look. I'm not going to tell you. And even if I do, it's not going to be worth much. So don't ask me those questions. You got to ask yourself, is it true? Is the way I think really revealing reality as it is? So you have to put that to rest. I cannot do it for you. Nobody can do it for you. So examine the questions. Okay. Thank well, you. Thank you. Okay, Paul. Yeah. Uh, what I have to say, I don't. I don't know how much it um, has anything to do with nothing matters, but I was just sitting here listening to everyone, and uh, we were discussing the idea that when you create a right you also then create a wrong. And uh, it just keeps coming to my mind the thought that um, there really, there is no such thing as right or wrong. It's a human construct. Like we created right and wrong. And uh, I was just kind of sitting here thinking to myself that, you know, animals just achieve their animalhood it's a natural progression for an animal and a mountain or a place just achieves its mountain hood or whatever you want to say. And it just, it just feels to me that humans are the only ones that cannot seem to achieve our humanhood, humanhood. Like we don't ever seem to achieve what we are supposed to be. Uh, because I mean, at least for me, I don't really know what, we're supposed to uh what we're supposed to do with 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 reality and with our lives but that that's pretty much what i was thinking thank you so we, this is why we're going backwards not forward right we're going back so yeah yeah so just uh, one second you're next uh we're going backwards sorry, and not yeah that's what i was thinking about tying that into the idea that like and that's what's so appealing about zen right instead of it expanding outward it's coming back to us and we have to we have to turn inward and find 
I guess the answers for just ourselves mm-hmm. and you know and, and right and wrong would be just an internal uh, creation I guess we have to expand from there right so we go inside to go outside so then the inside and outside are no longer two as we keep saying right but we, mm-hmm. we yes yeah, so so we, we okay what do we do where are we going in Zazen right there are no wheels under the cushion where are we going Right? We're not going anywhere. We are actually realizing that we don't need to go anywhere. That we cannot go anywhere because there's nobody who's moving from one point to another. There is moving, but there's nobody who is moving. Because the one who is moving and movement are not two. So, and, and yes, it's a tough one to chew on because we, because we don't think this way. We don't perceive reality this way which is what we have to, in a way, calm down. We calm down that in us that says, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't look this way. It doesn't smell the way it's supposed to smell. It doesn't sound the way it's supposed to sound. And based on my standards, it's unacceptable. Well, when is it acceptable? When is it acceptable? I would say it's acceptable when you don't hold anything to a standard. When you do not right. judge by any standards, it's acceptable. As long as you judge yeah. by any standards, it is not, well, it's acceptable for a little time, for a short period of time, and then it's not acceptable again. Because there is stuff to do. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Jasmine. Um, I think, I was, like, I think about this a lot. Um, I wonder, um, for me, if... I come into alignment with myself uh, moment to moment eliminated action will come from that um, so I just wonder if um, we don't we shouldn't worry about what to do next but more of am I centered and the doing will arise from there yeah, that's, that's my thought. Doing arises from being in a lot. You're saying, okay, uh, right view or right understanding yields right action. Right, right. Yes. Right, not, not as opposed to wrong. Right, like being, um, being centered in my, uh, within myself um, without any shedding of everything else, the ideas, the thoughts, the burdens we've carried, uh, misconceptions we've carried, or conceptions at all, and just being. And I find myself when I'm meditating or I'm just being alone, Mm -hmm. um, things that arise are not thoughts, but it's something deeper that Mm -hmm. arises. Mm -hmm. And and that's basically how I see see it as my um, my soul or my whatever name we want to call it, um, and that's giving me guidance mm-hmm. as to what to do now. Mm-hmm. But those moments are obviously very few and far between <laughs> at this moment. So, is this the right job to apply for for me? Right. You know. Am I in a, why am I doing this? 
all the, all those things, once those, those things subside within us, the conflicts that we have within ourselves, then the right answer will come forth by itself, what action to take, mm -hmm. if action needs to be taken or not, if something needs to be said or not. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I am processing it within myself. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And so the so our okay the, the devotion or the practice is devoted to finding alignment or, 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 or sensing alignment, right? So we sit with what is. We don't sit to arrive anywhere. We sit and we put everything else aside so we can experience what is, experience alignment. So some kind of alignment or, or togetherness with that or however we call it. But the point is we, when we, we may feel that, when we experience that, then it is moving us rather than I am moving it or are moving with it, right? So it, there is this, this internal uh, movement that in a way is saying, do this now, and we say, okay, and we do it. There's no, there's no gap, there's not even a dialogue, but we can look at it that way. So it is, we are moved by it rather than moving it. Yeah, I, um, I always think about like getting to the place where um, there's no thought, um, what needs to be said in a space arises from within and uh, um, like for example you asking a question if there's nothing to be said uh, and nothing is arising then nothing needs to be said but something um, that arises from within and I'm completely in the moment centered the right thing will come out that is needed for you in that moment. The right thing at that moment, yes. The right, right. for that moment, yes. Right. And, and it happens in the same way that uh, Paul mentioned uh, uh, animals, right? Um, they seem to know what to do at the right time. They know exactly what to do. They don't question it. There is something there that we keep talking about, and it's, it's really the great trust. We do have to develop the great trust in that. So we, we, you say we, we have glimpses of that. We have glimpses of that, but yet, while we st it's only glimpses, we still need to develop that trust in what we experience within those glimpses. And it does take time, which is fine. But, uh, but yeah, that's what we're talking about. So thank you. So we, are, uh, we have to wrap it up. So I just want to read a few more things, and then we're going to close with that. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, If those who teach Buddhism in the West keep in mind that all dharmas our Buddha Dharma, they will not feel like a drop of oil in a glass of water. If you practice in exactly the same way we practice in Vietnam, Tibet, Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, Japan, or Korea, the, drop, the oil drops will always remain separate from the water. And this has to do with us holding on to what we think the practice is or how we think it should look like. It's an important point. We, we're not here to, to, to look like Japanese uh, Chinese or anything. We're here to, to realize it now. So there's no need to emulate. There's no need to do what others did. But we are doing what others did to realize that there's no need to do what others did. So it's not that we, we throw away the tradition. We have, and this is where Paya comes in, we have to know how to use what we in inherited as a tradition. It's very important. Otherwise, we can become very dogmatic about it, and in a way, 
tie ourselves with the tradition that is meant to free us. So how do we practice? It's a big question. What is American Zen, for example? What is Zen right now, here, for us, in this Sangha, in this time? So when the, when the Dharma is essentially no Dharma, it is free to adapt to changes. We are free to adapt to changes. And I just want to finish with uh, some reading from another translation, uh, Musong translation, about all Dharmas or no Dharmas. <clears throat> this linguistic play is designed to get across the idea, once again, that the teachings of the Tathagata are skillful means, upaya, and are not to be appropriated as an ideology. The same linguistic analog is presented at the end of the section, when no self is equated with the true self. No self is true self, and no Dharma is true Dharma. The Buddha responded to the Brahminical formulation of permanent entity, the self or the Atman, with silence, without taking a position, either for nor against. Had he taken a position, he would have, he would have produced an alternate concept, which would not have been in keeping with the framework of his teaching. The Buddha gave primacy to personal experience, which is, of course, in Zen, the most important aspect of our practice. Direct perception into one's own experience allows a practitioner to become free of the concepts of self or no self. Both are a trap. Dharmas or no dharmas. This awareness or direct perception has meant for practitioners, for practitioners an expansion of self-imposed boundaries of self and emerging, so to speak, with a true or universal self. It cannot be cautioned too often that the pure experience, linguistic terms do not suffice. It is in the pure experience. We cannot, talking about it is not going to be an alternative to actually realizing. The Buddha also gives this warning in this passage. So, this is a very important point to, to end this discussion with, today's discussion with, that we can talk about it, we can examine it as a group or alone, but then we have to put all these examinations aside and turn the attention inwardly and ask about our own, or examine our own experiences. And then trust our experiences. Trust our experiences. It's a very important point. And uh, with that, we will finish and we will continue. This is going to take us a while, which is fine. Um, I said before that I feel that we are actually doing it correctly now because we are taking the time to talk about it and then savor it. Talk about it and savor it. So I think it could be truly uh, meaningful for each of us in our practice. So, thank you. To be continued.